Friends, as we begin a series, a brief series of messages on the Sundays that I will be here at church throughout the summer, I want to have a series of messages that uh, look at the, the important truths, the scriptural truths that we find, as we saw this morning, in many of the older songs, many that that uh, are not part of the modern rotation in most churches. And uh, I'm not going to get into the worship wars, uh, you know, the superiority of one type of music over the others, but uh, it, I think it's important for us to look at these and be encouraged by these because in fact we see we see the importance of worship in scripture we see the book of psalms you have 150 of the worship songs hebrew poetry recorded for us there how the people of god and the nation of israel uh, came before the lord in worship praise and thanksgiving we have various authors of those that we know of some of the names are connected to the psalms the most prominent of course is king david himself the sweet psalmist of israel he has been called but uh, I find that many of the hymns over the years, and these are obviously, because we're English speakers here, will be from English hymnody over uh, church history times. I think some of them have just important messages that sometimes get forgotten and get uh, left behind. And uh, I've called the summer series, Then Sings My Soul, because I believe that Scripture enjoins each one of us to, to uh, worship God in our hearts, to dwell on these things. And to share them as well with one another. As you see before you, that familiar passage from the book of Ephesians chapter 5 tells us to speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're to be a thankful, praising worshiping people as God's children. And uh, the various names for the worship songs there, psalms, those technically are like sacred songs. Uh, uh, most, most pointedly, those that we find recorded for us in the Bible. But there's hymns and worship songs, and uh, you try to find a good definition, the difference between a psalm and a hymn, and the reality is there is none. They overlap those categories. We won't get into that. But the reality that I want to share with you this morning is that that uh, <clears throat> about 300 years ago, about 300 years ago, all we had in church were hymns, and that was purposeful. Coming out of the Reformation, uh, many of the early reformers, including John Calvin in Geneva, they thundered in their pulpits against any worship songs apart from those recorded in Scripture. They said, if you sing any song other than those recorded in the Bible, the book of Psalms, uh, you're basically uh, being an idolater. You're taking your own imaginations and putting them on par with God's recorded songs in the Bible. That was very harsh. And that kind of put a lid on the expression of Christian worship for many, many years. But through a song today and others like it, the church moved out of that. They moved beyond that. They, uh, we still, of course, we, we value the book of Psalms, uh, but that was the songbook of the people of Israel, the people of God today, the church of Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ, the family of God. We have a savior to sing about. He's, he is, he is implicit in the book of Psalms, but Jesus and all that he's done for us is explicit in Christian hymns and worship songs 
being composed even through today. So we're going to look at some of these wonderful songs and uh, just the wonderful Christian messages that they have. Today, of course, we begin with, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Now, this was written a long time ago. It's written in 1707, but it was written as a communion hymn. And I chose it because beginning the series, because of various activities and the interchurch service and so forth, we haven't had our own communion time coming to the Lord's table for some time. And so I didn't want to miss out on that. And we're connecting it today. This song will help us to prepare our hearts to meet together at the Lord's table. It turns our eyes to Jesus. Because the songs as they were written, the music is secondary. The songs were always written with the words first and foremost. Now we love beautiful instrumentation, uh, different types of music, modern genres and so forth. But all of these songs, the hymn writers were writing basically poetry. And we're going to look at that today. Because the hymn writer of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross had a gift for poetry at a very young age. He's known as the father of English hymns, and his name, of course, is Isaac Watts. There's many famous uh, composers of English hymns over the years, but if you look in any English hymn book, you'll still, after 300 plus years, find hymns written by Isaac Watts. Now, he was the son of a pastor who throughout his childhood was generally in prison because his father was not a pastor in the Church of England there in Great Britain. He was a nonconformist pastor. They were those that believed the Church of England coming out of Catholicism through the wars of and the battles of Henry VIII through uh, Bloody Mary and Queen Elizabeth that we still basically had a warmed-over version of Catholicism where it was all too easy to go to church and think that was enough. Just attendance at a church was all that counted. But the nonconformist says, no, God desires a religion of the heart, not of the hands. And these people believed that you had to have a heart and a personal relationship that connected in faith to God through his son, Jesus Christ, and what he did on the cross. And so Isaac Watts, as I said, by the age of seven, he was writing poetry, astounding adults. And one of the men in his area, one of the eminent rich landowners, he offered Isaac Watts's family said, I will send him to Oxford and pay the full fare if he will enter into and become a churchman and a pastor for the Church of England. They wouldn't make that deal. They said, no, we believe in a religion of the heart, first and foremost, to love and have faith in Jesus, not be a member of a big political church organization. And so he continued on as a nonconformist, never had the Oxford education, but had an amazing ministry throughout his life. He pastored, he taught, he was a theologian, he was a brilliant logician. In fact, he didn't attend Oxford, but for many, many years, even centuries, his uh, books on logic and his various theological books were used as textbooks at Oxford. Well, as he began to set his, uh, his poetry, his poetic sites on church music, the story goes that he was attending church and they sang English songs in church as they always did. Remember, they could only sing the book of Psalms. But the book of Psalms is Hebrew poetry, 
Their poetry is different than yours and I. You remember English poetry has meter and we often have rhyme, the words sound alike. It's all about the sound of the words where Hebrew poetry, they don't rhyme the sound of words, they rhyme thought. They'll say the same thing twice in different words but meaning the same thing. It's a different type of poetry, quite beautiful in its own way, but how do you sing that in English? Well, what they did they translated it into English poetry. They gave it meter and rhyme. And we still sing some of those today. Some of you remember singing the 23rd Psalm, The Lord's My Shepherd. That is called a metrical psalm. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me down to lie. In pastures green, he leadeth me, the quiet waters by. You've heard that song. Some of you could sing it right now. That is a metrical psalm. It's been translated not just into English, but into English poetry. And that's all that was allowed in the church, especially the churches in England, conformist or nonconformist, for many years, even centuries. That came throughout the Middle Ages. What you see there, though, is a famous book. It's a psalm book from an old church. In fact, it was from the famous South Church in Boston. Remember the steeple in that church, Paul Revere? One if by land, two if by sea. He hung lanterns up in the steeple of the church to warn that the British were coming. That church, the most famous historical church in North America, in that church, they were going through its library and they found two of their old songbooks, metrical psalms. But they say, these are the Bay Psalm book, Chesapeake Bay. These were the first books ever printed on a printing press in North America, that book right there. And they had two of them, and they were only known portions and parts of them to exist. So to help the church have money to keep the church renovated and standing, it's hundreds of years old, they put one to auction at Southaby Auction, an old metrical psalm book. It sold for $14.1 million. Amazing. But these books, as amazing these old books are, they got so old and stale. And young Isaac Watts was so bored and depressed by the church music. It wasn't really even music. They'd have a cantor uh, up front and he would chant one of the lines and the congregation would chant and sort of plain song, sing it back to him, back and forth, back and forth. And he says, Jesus is missing from all of those. We don't find him in the book of Psalms. Isaac Watts, as the father of English hymns, believed that our song should be about Jesus, that Christ should be at the center of the worship of the followers of Jesus Christ. Makes sense to me. And he began to write verse that became hymns focused on Jesus. If he wrote, for instance, the 23rd Psalm, he would say, the Lord is my shepherd, but he would focus on the shepherd being Jesus, the good shepherd. And he would always inject Jesus into his hymns and songs. But he began to write more and more hymns which had a verse and a chorus and really unpacked the Christian experience and faith in Jesus. And one of those he wrote in 1707 when he was about 33 years old was When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. It's still being sung today. A few years ago, Chris Tomlin and Matt Redman in England, they wrote... The Wonderful Cross, where you sing 
when I survey the wondrous cross with a modern chorus, because this is actually just verses. Isaac Watts never wrote a chorus to it, so these modern singers did. Now, the music they used, and the one we'll sing at the close before we come to the communion table, is one of the two famous tunes this song is usually sung to. In England, it's sung to a completely different tune than we sing it. The tune is called Rockingham. We sing to a tune called Hamburg, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, a much simpler tune, not so elaborate, but very fitting to the somber subject matter, the death of Jesus on the cross for you and I. Well, that's the background of the song we're going to sing today. And we're going to look at the brief verses and the scriptural teaching they have for us because Isaac Watts often took scripture, not the book of Psalms, but New Testament scripture and paraphrased it poetically in his songs and brought them to life for us to sing in worship. First, we want to see the fact that he focuses in this song on the incomparable value of the cross. Nothing compares in importance and value to what Jesus did for us on the cross. Nothing. Nothing of value. That psalm book that sold for $14 million, drop it in the garbage compared to the value of what Jesus did for us. Remember what Peter wrote in First Peter, or First Peter chapter 1? You were not redeemed with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. This is the thought that Isaac Watts caught hold of. How precious and important the sacrifice of Jesus was for you and I today. It'll be on the screen, but I'll read from the old hymn book here. The first verse goes this way. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. And focusing on the cross, all that we value in this world seems to fade away the hymn writer tells us at this point. And then we know that's true because it's based on the truth of God's Word. He's paraphrasing Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. The Apostle Paul recounting what he used to put confidence in. He said, Paul in Philippians 3 says, I used to be so religious and so proud. Among my peers, I was top of the class. Among the most rigorous uh, worshipers in Judaism, the Pharisees, I was the leading light. I was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. But what I once valued, what the world's success looked like, no longer holds any attraction to me because I lay it alongside and I compare it to Jesus' death for me on the cross. The work of my hands is worth nothing. Paul writes in that passage, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ and to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Pure gospel. 
That's the New Testament good news. That we can't have a righteousness of our own religious works. We're not worthy. We never will be. But through faith in what Jesus did, taking your sin and paying the price on the cross, we're saved. We're set free. We're adopted into God's very family. Nothing will compare with that. Everything else pales in comparison. God's righteousness, His grace revealed to us, undeserving, through faith in Jesus. What a powerful and simple first verse. The incomparable value of Jesus' death for us on the cross. And He says, because of that, I will no longer toot my own horn, Pharisee of the Pharisees, because there were people in the early church trying, they were called Judaizers, trying to make early Gentile Christians get circumcised, follow Jewish dietary laws, become a practicing Jew as well as a follower of Jesus as the Messiah. And Paul says, that's wrong. You're trying to yoke them under the law. The law cannot save. Only Jesus can save on the cross. And Paul says, those early teachers, they're so proud of their converts. They're so proud of themselves. Paul says, though he's the apostle to the Gentiles, I only boast in Jesus, only in the cross. The verse that Isaac Watts wrote reflecting that, verse 2 says, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Those things that he used to take all his pride in, be most proud of, he's thrown them away for the incomparable value of knowing the Lord. And he says, I will boast in nothing else. Now, if that sounds familiar, it should, because again, Isaac Watts is paraphrasing Scripture. This time, from the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. The Apostle Paul writes in that passage, May I never boast, and this is in response to those Judaizers who boast of their converts, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Never boast except in the cross of Jesus. And what's that mean, through which the cross, the world's been crucified to me? It means that, that all of those things I've valued... They're dead now, dead and buried. I don't need the world's praise. We as Christians don't need the world's approval. And that's good because in the, the way the world is going today, you are becoming more and more anathema to the world. They look at you who believe in right and wrong, that there's truth and false, that there's a God who loves us, that there's morality you're seen as out of step. You do not have the world's approval. In fact, as a follower of Jesus, you'll have nothing but scorn and disapproval. But the Apostle Paul and Isaac Watts says, that's okay. Because through the focus on Jesus and His love for us on the cross, the world's approval holds no attraction to us. And the fact is, he says through the cross, Paul says, I've been crucified to the world. They no longer want what I'm giving out. Most people will never accept the message of the good news of the gospel because before the good news, we have to admit to the bad news. 
that we're not perfect, that we're not God, that we're sinners in need of a Savior. The world to us has been crucified, and we to the world. That's the teaching of Galatians chapter 6. Isaac Watts continues. It's just a short hymn, just those four quick verses. The third one focuses on the sorrow and the love of Jesus. When I think of that, the burden that he bore for us, our sin he took to the cross, knowing the weight of that that was going to fall completely on him, he who had no sin became sin for us, that we could become righteousness through faith in him. Jesus did it gladly for his love for us. But to be separated from his father, forsaken on the cross, what a great burden. And it broke his heart that that was going to come to him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see that most clearly. The verse, verse 3, goes this way. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? For my money, the most beautiful verse in the entire beautiful hymn, to combine God's sorrow and love in Jesus for us, mingled in the blood of Christ shed for us on the cross. It's powerful and it's meaningful. In Matthew chapter 26, we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the burden was beginning to weigh heavily on him. I'll read a verse earlier. It says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here. And keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. What allowed him to drink the cup in the midst of his great sorrow? It was his love. It was for you. It was for you who was in his heart and his mind, knowing you fully, all that you would ever be, all you would ever say, think, or do. He loved you all the same. And he took your sin to the cross. As we're reminded in the Gospel of John chapter 15, Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. This is Jesus' great love. Counting we sinners, a lost world, as his friends. And dying in our place. Powerful, powerful. The final verse, it's your response. Many hymns Finish with our response. We survey the wondrous cross. We see the reality of it at the communion table. The body given for us. The blood shed for us. What will my response be? How will my life be different in the light of Jesus' love for me? Living in the light of Jesus' love.
What does your life look like? Are you following in the steps of Jesus? Are you living a life in keeping with your faith? The old saying is, are you practicing what you preach? This is how Isaac Watts sums up his response in verse 4. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. God's love demands our all. All our life should be a response. Not just a little while on Sunday morning. Not just now and again when the thought crosses our mind. But Jesus, all for Jesus, devotion. This is what this verse speaks of. There is a word. There is a word that is used in two passages. And you'll see it on the screen in a little while. Before we get there, the Greek word is axios. Sounds like a modern word. There's a lot of companies with that in their title for some reason. But it's simply a Greek word we find in Scripture that's translated in English as worthy. Worthy. Worthy is the Lamb. Axios is 46 times in the New Testament. In the book of Revelation, it's the song at the throne. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. He is deserving of praise. Because axios has two separate and distinct meanings, both of which are used in, in Scripture. But worthy has those same meanings in English. Worthy is the Lamb. That means deserving. Jesus is worthy of our praise. He deserves it. He alone is worthy of praise. Not the works of man, temporary, flawed, with mixed motives, but worthy is the Lamb as we see His love for us on the cross. It is worthy, axios, deserving. It comes from an old word that means they weigh the same. They're worth the same amount. You could put two weights on a scale, and if they balanced, they were axios. They were worthy, the same, of the same value. But just like our English word has a different meaning, so does the word axios. That means something is in keeping with something. That it's congruous. It matches it. It's in step with it. It's appropriate to it. If I do something that uh, breaks my parents' heart, they say, your actions are not worthy of the name that you bear. It's out of keeping with our family. You're not acting as we do. You are out of step with us. Now, these two verses, I'll show you axios in both of these. And it speaks to our response to what Jesus did for us on the cross. The first we see is Matthew chapter 10. You don't hear it preached on much because Jesus is pretty stern here. He's pretty harsh and to the point. Jesus simply said, anyone who loves his father and mother more than me, not more than Jesus loves them, but loves them more than they love Jesus, is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. 
Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's a powerful teaching. Jesus said our affection for him, as recorded in that hymn, should be above all things. We don't hate our parents. We don't hate our children. But our love for them does not remotely approach our love for the Lord, our love for Jesus. He's first. If anything goes before that love for Christ, by definition, it is an idol. And we can make idols of wonderful things or even wonderful people, but we ought not. Jesus says, a secondary love like that is not deserving of me. It doesn't match. It's not deserving. But he speaks of our lives. They should be congruent in keeping suitable, compatible with the faith and the love we have for Jesus. We see that clearly in Colossians chapter 1. The word axios is used again. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. The Apostle Paul writes, And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. That's a wonderful passage. But it tells us that Christ's love demands we live a life worthy of the faith we profess. And that's not deserving. Very clearly, we're not deserving of salvation. Scripture makes that abundantly clear. There's none righteous, not even one. We're undeserving. That's why it's grace. It's a gift, not a wage. We earn the wages of sin, which is death. But we're called to live a life that is worthy, that is in keeping with our faith. As followers of Jesus, our lives reflect Him. We're walking in His steps. And that's why it talks about love and good works and, and joy and the fruit of the Spirit. That all describes a worthy life. If you're one of these sour Christians who always has a chip on your shoulder and you're so busy pointing your finger, you almost have arthritis in it because you're pointing at sinners and you're pointing at Christians. They're always letting you down and you're just a victim. You're a good one and everybody else isn't. Boy, is that ever unworthy? Legalism, is that ever unworthy? We are to be, speak the truth, speak it in love. We are to be people that are attractional, not to us. We don't boast about anything but Jesus. But they're attracted to Jesus and His love through us. Love so amazing. Love so divine. Demands my soul, my life, and my all. It's a wonderful hymn. It's a wonderful prayer. And as we prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table... I'll ask the worship team to help us to prepare by singing this old communion hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. As they do so, as they're coming up, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for worship and music and praise. We're commanded to rejoice and to 
share that joy with one another as we speak the words of beloved hymns and psalms and worship songs. Lord, I thank you for stirring the hearts of artistic people who not only have the gifts, but the love of Jesus to write worship songs for every generation. Lord, some of those are powerful, so powerful and meaningful that they stay around for decades, or in this case, even centuries. And so now, Father, as we prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table, we join so many Christians, so many generations of believers who have surveyed the wondrous cross and prepared their hearts at the communion table with this very same song. So we join that now, Father, as we lift you up and praise you and thank you once again for the wondrous cross. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, if you want, you can pick up the hymnal. It is hymn number 156. And if you can, please rise with us.
you may be dismissed. Oh, seated, sorry. <laughs> Almost dismissed. This time I'll call those who will be serving with me to come forward to uh, join me at the Lord's table. As I normally, I, I failed uh, to uh, explain this morning that whenever we celebrate communion, the Lord's table, some churches celebrate what they call closed communion. It's only for members of that church. We here, we practice open communion. It's for all who trust in Jesus as their Savior. As we share together both the bread, which is a symbol for us of the the body of Christ given freely for us on the cross, as well as the cup, which signifies to us and reminds us of the shed blood of Jesus. We base our practice on Scripture, especially we find it in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. The early church, they included the Lord's table as part of basically a potluck, a fellowship meal, also known as a love feast. But just as a small portion of that, where they would recognize Jesus with a cup and a piece of bread, but meanwhile, he was getting lost in the in the mix some people they got into their wine too early and they were drinking too much and others came poor and had no food to share and they went hungry and the apostle paul says that's not how the body of jesus should function so he focused primarily on these two elements and more and more they became separate from the larger meal the apostle paul in in correcting the church he wrote this for i receive from the lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'll call upon Marlon to give thanks for the bread, which reminds us of the body of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this table... Our prayer is that we don't take this lightly, but that we truly grasp the level of sacrifice that you made, that you died for us uh, on that cross. So, Father, as we take this bread, may we remember that sacrifice. Amen. Amen.
Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen. I'll call upon Lance to give thanks for the cup, which is a visible reminder of the shed blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you so much for a gift that we're never able to repay, uh, the shedding of your son's blood, Jesus. And God, may we live lives that are worthy of that sacrifice. And um, we just want to thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Amen. I'd ask that you stand with me now and be dismissed with a word of prayer. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time together, the time of worship, the time of attendance to your word, the time of sharing your love with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, Lord, as we leave this place of worship, of of fellowship, Lord, send us to our places of ministry, whether that be in our homes, at school, at work, in our neighborhoods. Lord, may we shine Jesus' love into the lives of others this week. We pray all of this in his precious name. Amen. God bless.